Hey, this is Pastor Doug, and you have made it to our Christmas stories. We are going to be telling a different Christmas story every day of December up until Christmas. I love Christmas stories, and this is the best way I can think of to get into the Christmas spirit. Good to have you with us. Today we begin a story called A Christmas Miracle. It's a story by Harrison S. Morris. I was drawn to this because it takes place in Spain, and it reminds me of my time four years ago as we celebrated some of the final days of Christmas walking the Camino in Spain. Here is A Christmas Miracle. You have never heard of Alcala? Well, it is a little village nestling between the Spanish hills, a league from Great Madrid. There is a ring of stone houses, each with its white-walled patio and grated windows, each with its balcony, whence now and then a laughing face looks down upon the traveler. There is an ancient inn by the roadside, a time-worn church, and above, on the hilltop, against the still blue sky, the castle dusky with age, but still keeping a feudal dignity, though half its yellow walls have crumbled away. This is the Alcala, into which I jogged one winter evening in search of rest and entertainment after a long day's journey on a mule's back. The inn was in a doze when my footsteps broke the silence of its stone courtyard. But presently a woman came through an inner door to answer my summons, and I was speedily cast under the quiet spell of the place by finding myself behind a screen of leaves with a straw-covered bottle at my elbow and a cold fowl within comfortable reach. The bowl where I sat was unlighted save by the waning sun, and I could see but little of its long vista without neglecting a very imperious appetite. The lattice was covered, I thought with vine leaves, and I felt sure, too, that some orange boughs reaching across the patio wall mingled with the foliage above my head. But all I was certain of was the relish of the fowl and the delicious refreshment of the cool wine. Having finished these, I lay back in my chair, luxuriating in the sense of healthy fatigue and going over again in fancy the rolling roads of my journey. I believe I also fell into the prevailing slumber of the place, lulled by the soft atmosphere and gentle wine, and might have slept there till morning, had a furious sneeze not awakened me with a start. I looked confusedly about in the dusk, but could see nothing save at last the tip of a lighted cigarette in the remote depths of the bower, and I called out, "'Who's there?' and was answered courteously by a deep, gruff voice in Spanish." It is I, Senor Jose Rosada. Are you a guest of La Fonda, said I, for I had learned that this was the name of the inn, and was a little doubtful whether I had fallen into the hands of friend or foe. <laughs> With a long explosion of guttural sounds was my only answer then, after a brightening of the cigarette fire to denote that the smoker was puffing it into life, he said, I, Senor and the host. At this, I drew my chair closer and found in the thin reflection of the cigarette, a round bronzed face beaming with smile and picturing easy good health. It was winter in Spain, but the scent of flower was abroad and the soft far off stars twinkled through the moving leaves. 
What wonder, then, that we fell into talk, I, the inquiring traveler, he, the arch-gossip of Alcala, and talked till the moon rose high into the night. And who lives in the castle on the hill, I asked, after hearing the private history of half the town. Ah, said mine host, as if preparing to swallow a savory morsel. There's a bit of gossip. There's a story indeed. He puffed away for a minute in mute satisfaction, and then began. That is a noble family, the Aranez. None can remember an Alcala when there was not a noble Aranez living in its castle, and they have led our people bravely in all the wars of Spain, I remember as a boy. But having been acquainted with mine host's loquacity, I broke in with a question, more to the point. Who, Senor Jose, lives in the castle now? He would have answered without a suspicion of my ruse had not a bell just then rung solemnly forth, awakening the still night and arousing Jose Rosado from his comfortable bench promptly to his feet. Come, he said, that is for the Christmas mass. I will tell you as we go. The little inn was lively enough as we emerged from the bower and crossed the courtyard toward the road. The woman who had prepared my supper came forth, arrayed in a capulet of white and scarlet, and two younger girls who accompanied her wore veils and long black robes, which fell about their forms like oriental garments. Two or three men, attendants and hustler, hustlers of the place, were also about to start, triggered out in queer little capes and high-crowned hats. All this fine apparel, mine host informed me, was peculiar to Christmas, and I soon found the highway full of peasants in similar garb. As we got off, Jose Rosado resumed his story, which was brief enough to beguile us just to the church door. You ask me, senor, who lives in the castle now? The Donna Isabella is alone there now, the only survivor of the noble race, except, except, senor, he laid a peculiar emphasis on the word, except, a willful son whom she has disowned and driven from her house. He is a handsome lad and married here in Alcala. The beauty of the town, in spite of his mother's wounded pride, it was a love match of stolen wooing and secret wedding. But ha ha ha, we saw it all, knew it all before even they did themselves. Many an evening have I met them on these roads, billing and cooing like the doves on La Fonda's eaves. They were made by nature for each other, though, and even the rage of the proud Dona Isabella could never part them. And do they still live in the town, I asked? Oh, yes, said Jose, over there in the white house where the olive trees are at the bottom of the long hill. I looked in the direction whither he pointed, but I could see little in the dim moonlight, save a white wall and mid-dense shadows. And is... Donna Isabella, a very old lady, I asked, because very old ladies are often charged with peculiar severity to very young ones. No, 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 said Jose Rosado, with a quick turn of the head to each no. She's a widow lady of middle age, very proud and very handsome. You shall see her presently, for she has consented to take part in the Christmas play at the church. As I had come a long journey to see the same Christmas play, my expectation was doubly aroused as we approached the old edifice, whose open belfry and rows of cloisters stood before us at the top of the hill we were ascending. As we entered, the bells stopped ringing, 
for it was precisely midnight, and the priest at the altar began to say the Christmas masses. When he had reached the gospel, he was interrupted by the appearance of a matron, dressed all in white, who stood at the end of the nave. She was clad like the Madonna and was accompanied by Joseph, who wore the garb of a mountaineer with a hatchet in his hand. An officious little crowd with a halberd opened the way through the crowd before these personages, and they came solemnly up the aisle toward the chancel, which had been arrayed to represent Bethlehem. The Madonna reciting as she moved forward a plaintive song about her homelessness. Joseph replied cheeringly and led her under a roof of leaves in the sanctuary formed in the manner of a stable, in which he could see the manger against the wall. Here she took rest from her journey, while a little crib wherein lay the bambino, or waxen image of the babe, all adorned with ribbons and laces, was brought from the sacristy and placed in the straw at her feet. As the Madonna passed us, Jose Rosado nudged me and whispered audibly enough to make the crowd about us turn and stare. Hist! Here's the Donna Isabella, senor. She looks like a saint tonight. I watched her closely as she went by me and marked, under the meek expression assumed by the Virgin, a more characteristic one of severe resolution. She was, however, a queenly woman in the ripest stage of maturity, but she bore herself in the part she had taken with a matronly grace, something too conscious for the lowly Mary. As she seated herself on the heap of straw, a little boy in a surplice, representing an angel with wings of crimped lawn at his shoulder, was raised in a chair by a cord and pulley to the very top of the sanctuary arch where he sang a carol to the shepherds. Shepherds, hasten all with flying feet from your retreat. On rustic pipes now play your sweetest, sweetest lay. For so ran the song, Mary and the King of Heaven are in yonder cave. At this, an orchestra concealed behind the high altar set up a tooting from bagpipes and flute and violin, which served as a prelude to the appearance of the shepherds who were concealed in the gallery. Up they got with their long cloaks and crooked staffs, murmuring their surprise and incredulity at what the angel had said, some pretending to grumble at being awakened from sleep, others anxious to prove the truth of the strange tidings. Then the angel sang a more appealing ditty, still whereat they were all about ready to advance when one of their number of a skeptical turn urged them to avoid such fanciful matters and give heed to their sheep who would otherwise become the prey of the wolf. Hereupon an old shepherd appeared who gave three loud knocks with his crook and denounced those who should disobey the heavenly messenger. The practical man was thus silenced and they expressed their willingness to go to the manger. And at the same moment, an angel appeared to guide them thither. They descended from the gallery to the outer porch of the church, knocked loudly at the door saying as if to the innkeeper at Bethlehem, Pray, good master of the inn, open the door and let us in. But Joseph became alarmed at the approach of such a number of rustics and inquired who they were. They hold, held a songful colloquy with him, but he continued to refuse them admittance until an angel again intervened, this time in the form of a tall acolyte from the sanctuary, accompanied by two little angelic choristers. He reassured Joseph and invited the shepherds to enter and worship the babe. 
They came up the aisle flourishing their beribboned crooks, singing in praise of the child. But they were sorely vexed when they saw the stable, that so humble a place had been found for his shelter. Joseph explained in several couplets that no other house would receive them, and the shepherds replied in several others, mingling sympathy and good advice, intended not for Joseph, but for the throng who listened in religious awe. After paying due homage to the child and Mary, the shepherds exchanged some more verses with Joseph and then retired to the other end of the church, singing in chorus as they went. All these ceremonies had so claimed my attention that I had given scarcely any heed to the virgin. She was seated humbly in the straw beside the little crib in which still nestled the bambino, and with eyes cast down in maternal thoughtfulness, she was a lovely object there beneath the roof of the leafy stable. She did not appear to notice the actors in the drama, and now, when three young girls in gayest holiday attire came forward with distaffs that streamed with bright ribbons and knelt before her, she reached forth a hand as if to bless them, but kept her eyes turned meekly upon the ground. As these three girls retired from the manger, another and larger band appeared beneath the gallery opposite the shepherds, singing in sweet voices, a salutation to the three who had just left the chancel. These made answers that they had come from the stable where the Savior was born, and so in alternate question and answer they described all that had seen, the two groups having advanced a step or two at each stanza now met and went back to the manger together singing the same air the shepherds had previously sung. When they arrived at the stable, they made their offering, setting up a tent while ornamented with plenteous ribbons and flowers, among which blackbirds, thrushes, turtle doves, and partridge fluttered about at the end of cords to which they were fastened. They brought with them also bunches of purple grapes, strings of yellow apples, chaplets of dried prunes, and heaps of walnuts and chestnuts. After arranging these rustic offerings, the shepherdesses returned, singing in chorus as they went. In Bethlehem at midnight, the virgin mother bore her child. This world contains no fairer sight than this fair babe and merry mild. Well may we sing at night like this, Gloria in excelsis. I now had another unobstructed view of Donna Isabella and Jose Rosado's gossip intensified by her romantic appearance as the virgin, had given me a deep interest in her every movement. She reached down into the little crib to lift out the bambino, and I could plainly see a look of astonishment rise to her face as she started back, both hands held wide apart, as if having encountered something they were unprepared to touch. Then she turned hurriedly to Joseph and whispered a word in his ear, whereupon he too bent with surprise over the little crib. After gazing at it a moment, he reached down and lifted out not the waxen bambino, but a sweet young baby that smiled and reached its tiny arms from Joseph toward the white virgin. Donna Isabella was visibly affected at this and took its tender infant into her arms, caressing and soothing it, while it fondled her face and white headdress. The audience had now become aware that, instead of the waxen image in the crib, there had been found a living baby, and the impetuous and susceptible minds of the Spanish peasants had jumped at the conclusion that they had witnessed a new miracle. They crowded up to the manger, telling their 
beads and murmuring prayers while they pushed and jostled each other madly for a glimpse of the holy infant. One of the acolytes reached his arms forth to take it from Donna Isabella and bring it to the chancel rail for the crowd to see, but she held it more closely to her bosom and refused to let it go from her. As she stood there, a tall and stately figure, folded in the white gown of the Virgin and wearing the close headdress which concealed all save her splendid face, she seemed the creation of some old painter, and the curious crowd of peasants was hushed into admiration by her beauty and her tenderness for the child. She, too, became a part of the strange miracle. The infant Christ had been born anew among them and lay there in his very mother's arms, an object of mystery and worship. As the silence of wonder ensued, Donna Isabella seemed to collect her startled senses and looked around her, as if expecting the mother of the child to come and claim it. A woman of her resolution was not to be hurried into superstitious follies by some petty trick or accident. But the little one lay so softly in her arms and reached with such tiny appealing fingers at her throat that she began to feel a motherly fondness for it. And moreover, had it not been sent to her, who was alone now in the great castle on the hill as a mysterious gift of providence? Ought she not to feel it, a sacred charge, coming as it did from the very manger to her arms? Thus thinking that Donna Isabella came slowly to the chancel rail, and holding forth the infant at arm's length, she said, Good people of Alcala, my part in the Christmas play is done. The good Lord has sent me this little one to take care of, and here before you all I accept the charge and promise to cherish and love it. If any of you knows its mother, say that the Dona Isabella has carried it to the castle of Aranuez, and tell her to follow it there, for where her child is, there the mother should be also. This broke the spell. The silent crowd fell into murmurs and gestures, and each one asked his neighbor where the child belonged. There was no longer any doubt. It was merely a human child, but the mystery of the manger surrounded it with a hallowed interest, and everybody was eager to discover its parents and to bear them the good news of its adoption by the great lady. Now, Jose Rosado was too old a hand, too jolly a host to be long deceived. He whispered me his views as we stood near the leafy stable, and they were to the effect that the wayward son of the Arwen Wes knew more about the child in the manger than anyone else thereabouts. And Jose was right. For before the bustle of inquiry had quietly died away, from out of the sacristy door came a young girl wearing a veil, dressed in the long black gown of the Christmas ceremonies. She walked demurely through the crowd, which parted for her with inquiring looks, and going straight up to the chancel, dropped on her knees before the Donna Isabella. She held down her head and made no motion, but all knew instinctively that she was the mother of the child. The noble virgin stooped and raised her head, with a loving compassion. She put aside her veil and moved as if to kiss her, but one look at the mother's face turned her kindness into rage. She cried, what? You? And overwhelmed at the discovery, sank down on the straw of the table, clasping the child with a firmer hold as if to shield it from a foe. It was a sore conflict for an unyielding will like that of the Donna Isabella. But the part she had played in the sacred ceremonies 
and the surrounding emblems of peace and goodwill were softening influences. More potent even than these was the persuasive contact of the little hands, which opened and shut in playful touches at her throat. I could see from the varying expressions of her face that she questioned herself. Should she yield the pride of birth, the disobedience of a youthful son to a mother of her indulgent nature, the stigma of a low connection upon a noble family name, all these things pleaded urgently no. She looked up vindictively at the gaping congregation, which seemed spellbound in wanton curiosity. Wherewith was mingled not a little religious dread. And then again, she turned her eyes down upon the innocent face beside her bosom, so guileless to be the cause of such varying passions in the throng about it. No, she could not give it up. All the old maternal instincts were aroused in her, and the firmness of her will was redoubled by the sentiment of love for her grandchild. Was it not her son's child then as well as this woman's? Surely she had a right to keep it. And glancing up with the last plea for possession on her lips, she saw beside the kneeling wife a new figure, whose presence made her pause and falter. Only for an instant. However, for a kindlier light which came into her clear eyes and reaching forth the one arm which was free, she threw it around her son's neck. She kissed him fondly while the little child which had wrought the change, a latter-day miracle of broken affections made whole, of bitter wounds healed by the touch of innocence, lay there between them striving with its playful hands to catch at its mother's bowing head. As Jose Rosado and I walked homeward through the pale blue moonlight, we did not say much. I was deeply moved by the touching scene I had beheld, and he was exceedingly reflective. At last, as we neared La Fonda's vine-run walls, he said, Senor, do you think the miracles are all over nowadays? I know not, Senor Jose, I answered, but there are certainly strange potencies lurking in the depths of a mother's love. And that is the story of a Christmas miracle from Alcala, Spain. There are certain strange potencies lurking in the depths of a mother's love. Amen and amen. Tune in tomorrow where we'll go from Spain right across to Italy. Okay, sweet dreams, and may your dreams be merry and bright. <laughs>